0: There's a poem called Success by Emily Dickinson, many of you know. I think if I'd gone back to college today, I spent two years at K-State, which were a waste other than uh, coming to faith in Christ. But if I did it all over, I think I'd be an English major. English is probably, after the Bible, my first love. Emily Dickinson, though, uh, 1800s, a poet in the United States, you know, not well known until, frankly, after she died. But... Her gift was really sort of to condense thoughts. Most of her poems are quite short and pithy, piquant there. Uh, She was a master at that. One of her poems, which I won't recite in toto, but is called Success. And she starts by saying, Success is counted sweetest by those who never succeed. And it goes on to describe that the person who failed in this battle could tell you the definition of more clearly of success or victory than the victors could, because it was the sense of loss. I know what I didn't get. I know what I lost, and and it's actually my loss, it's my failure that gives me this sense of the value of success or victory. And we're gonna be talking, second point this morning, we'll talk about victory, success, or failure, and really bringing up this thought For ourselves or for others, are we using the right kind of metric to determine whether we are successful in life or others are successful in life? I think for most of us, more often than not, we're using a means of determining our own faithfulness or value or failure or success on a wrong guideline, a wrong standard. And I think we'll see that in spades this morning in the text that we're in. And this is, by the way, the 37th message in the Heroes and Villains series. And you remember, we're looking at the heroes of the faith in the past because we're looking not at them as biographies so much as those key elements in their life in which we see Christ-like faithfulness displayed. The life of Christ revealed in some aspect of their life and faithfulness. And of course, the villains are just the opposite. What we don't want, those elements of life that we may see sometimes in ourselves or others that we don't want to encourage... This morning, we're looking at the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. He's probably the most famous of the Old Testament prophets. His name means "God has saved." And it's interesting because, on one hand, you think of his book, and Psalm, or excuse me, chapter 53 of Isaiah is one of the clearest presentations in all the Old Testament, of God's saving work for us in the suffering servant, the death of the Messiah. Not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. And Isaiah gives us that, but, but guess what in Isaiah's lifetime, guess what he didn't see? He didn't see God's people saved. His name means God is saved. He gives us these crazy, exemplary images of God and God's Savior, but in his life and in his time, he doesn't get to see what I'm sure he hoped to see, thought he would see. He doesn't get to see God's people come to salvation. Which is interesting. He's called the Prince of the Prophets, and he served, thinking big picture here and timelines here. He served from 740 BC to at least 701 BC. So on the timeline, he's there for part or all of the reigns of Kings Uzziah. He's in the southern kingdom, by the way. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, he may even live uh, 20 years after that because he records the death of the Assyrian king Sennacherib, which was 681 BC. There's extra biblical writings that make us think that he may have been cousin to King Uzziah. It looks like he may have come from the royal line also. Uh, whether he was or not, he's called the Prince of the Prophets because his book is one so long. Number of chapter 66, it's second only to Psalms in its length, though by verse and words it's not the longest. Uh, I think Jeremiah is the longest and then Ezekiel. And then also, as glorious as his life was and these visions that he has, if extra-biblical writings are correct, uh, Hebrews 11 was referring to Isaiah being sawn in half by King Manasseh, that it's inferred that that's the way his life ended. So he... Isaiah is kind of a a bundle of contradictions in that his own life and his own visions are spectacular, but the fruit of that in his own lifetime is almost negligible, almost gone entirely. As we look at the main points this morning, the two main points that I hope we go away with, the first is this, the secret or the means of having, keeping, and developing a faithful spirit because that's what we want. We're trying to emulate Christ's life, Christ's life in us. Faithfulness was the key element we saw in his life when we started this series. Developing and keeping faithfulness in the life of Christ is tied to seeing him, to knowing him. So whether you say seeing as in, with my eyes I see God, or with the eyes of my heart I see God, or I hear something, but it's coming into this personal grasp or experience of something that's real about God, something that's true about God Himself. That's the first thing. And the second one is this. Sometimes faithfulness to God will look like in your life and mine failure, depending on the metric we use. Sometimes faithfulness requires sowing but not reaping, being the bridesmaid but not the bride, running the race of life but not winning, or at least not winning in the ways or the expectations we might have entertained initially. In fact, if you think back for just a moment on the life and the story of Job we looked at a season or two ago, we saw that at the end of the day, faith in God and faith in His Word is what we hold on to. That faithfulness at the end of the day is strictly tied to God and God's promises, that we hold everything else lightly. Because don't you find in life that God does things in a way that you wouldn't and that I wouldn't? And we think God's doing one thing and we realize later, well, he wasn't doing that at all. So we want the whole thing about how do we gain this attitude of this heart of faithfulness? How do we keep it? And then how do we judge in our own life success or failure? Those are the two key points that come up this morning. If you have your Bibles open to Isaiah 6... If you use a pew Bible, this is page 571. Isaiah 6 is this just sparkling passage. It's, it's quoted as one of the most famous passages in Isaiah. Uh, some commentators, most at least historically, assume that, that the passage we'll read this morning was Isaiah's initial introduction to God when God called him to be a prophet. Others say, well, no, we think it actually occurred later. In any event, it's this spectacular vision he has of God and the impact it has on his life, God's call, and then what follows. So we'll start with verses one through eight, Isaiah six. So in the year that King Uzziah died, that's 740 B.C., I saw the Lord and just for details, Lord here is Adonai, not Yahweh here. I saw the Lord. I saw Adonai sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and and seraphim, the Hebrew there, means fiery ones or burning ones. These angels would have looked like they were on fire. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I am lost. I am undone. I am destroyed. I cannot exist as I am in his presence. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. Now, this, the setting is, is in the time, the time frame of the death of Uzziah, King Uzziah. And this is significant for a number of reasons. Uzziah was a godly king. He was one of Judah's good kings. And if you know his story, he really, really blew it early earlier in his reign. In pride, he tried to take on the role of a priest. He went to offer incense in the temple. And the priest told him, don't do this, get out of here. And before he could get out, God struck him with leprosy and he was a leper for the rest of his life. But he was a godly king. And Judah had enjoyed peace and prosperity for 52 years under his rule and reign. So Isaiah's vision comes in the time frame of the loss of this godly king whom the nation has been nothing but blessed by. And you can imagine... Every presidential cycle, don't we wonder what's the new administration going to bring? Is it up and down? Is it, is it sour cherries? Is, is it chocolate ice cream? You know, what, what's in the future? So this would have been going through their minds as well. And on top of that, remember, Israel at its height was a pretty significant nation, but you've got two smaller kingdoms now, Judah only there in the south. And Assyria, the power of Assyria, is on the rise to the north and east. And Assyria is going to come, and in less than 20 years, they're going to destroy the northern kingdom, 722 B.C. During Isaiah's ministry, Israel is going to go down. So so you've got this thought, this question, what's Judah going to be like under a new king? But also, with threats rising from the east, nations much more large than us, much more powerful militarily, what's our life going to look like? And that's the context, that's the scene into which God calls Isaiah to this heavenly vision. Most commentators, if you look this up, will say they think that this vision of Yahweh occurs in the temple in Jerusalem. And, and that doesn't make sense to me. The text doesn't actually say. It uses the term temple. But if you look in both Hebrews and in Revelation, there's a temple in heaven as well. And the setting doesn't fit. So in this one, God's high and lifted up. There's no Ark of the Covenant there. There's no cherubim. There's seraphim. It seems to be a different setting. Whether it's on earth or in heaven, though, Isaiah is seeing God as he is. And there's an inference I'll mention in a little bit in which this is not God the Father, but God the Son. This is Christ pre-incarnate that Isaiah is seeing in his glory. And his first the, the first thing that comes to him is he's up there, and, and I don't know if he felt like he woke up, and now I'm in this setting, and, but he hears those angels crying, holy, holy, holy. Holy. Now, you know, for you and I, in the future, you think of Revelation chapter 4 and 5, when we get to heaven and we're in our redeemed bodies, uh, we're going to see Christ and we're going to say, holy, holy, holy too. But, but what does Isaiah say? He doesn't say, holy, 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 does he? Because he can't. Because what has happened? As soon as he sees God, what does he know? He's holy and I'm not. And all Isaiah can initially think of is his own sin. Because he sees God as he is, and the seraphim say that most basic truth element about God, he's holy. You know, if you come from a religious background, holy can sound like a very narrow term, and and sometimes it's not helpful. So we would say something like, God is the absolutely most perfect, unique, Person, force, presence, power in the universe. No one else, nothing else remotely compares with Him. So it's not just that He's without sin, it's His magnificence, His perfection, His overawing presence alone. We can't even stand there. We can't get there. So all Isaiah can think of initially is, He's holy and I'm not. He's perfect and I'm sinful. And so he says... The seraphim, they're crying out God's praise, he's holy, and he can't. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, if he's already a prophet, he's characterized by the words of his mouth. And if he's not, we know that briefly he's going to be called to be God's messenger, to speak God's word. And the first thing he says is, my lips are unclean. I can't be God's messenger. I can't speak the truth. I'm not what I should be. And by the way, no one else is either. And remember, Isaiah was a godly guy. The best among us, this godly guy is before God, and he says, I am undone. I can't continue to exist as I am in God's holy presence. He's overawed by God, but God's presence makes him realize that he is deficient, that he's morally deficient, that he's sinful. And he says it's occurred because he has seen the king in his glory. Now, to Isaiah's cries of his own sinfulness, one of the angels takes a coal from the altar, touches his lips, and tells him that his sin is covered, that it's atoned for. God has taken away his unworthiness. And this is is important, isn't it? You know, one of the things we struggle with as Christians, as believers, you know, you hear the, message of the gospel, God's holy, we're not, we're sinful, we need somebody to cover our sin. And we say, think of Romans 8, you know, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But don't you feel that you still suffer the pangs of sin or guilt? You got to remind yourself again and again, Christ's atonement is enough. Well, Isaiah got it. So when the angel says your sin is atoned for, he got it. And we know he got it because now when God speaks and God is held off till now, before we hear God's voice, because now God's going to speak and Isaiah will be able to respond because he knows his sin has been covered. So now he's able to stand in God's presence and have this interaction with the holy God who's so different from him. So you get to verse 8. Now I hear the voice of the Lord. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And, and I think we're meant to see, again, instead of the Jerusalem temple, the courts of heaven. This would be like the story of Micaiah back in Kings where God's holding court. It'd be like a king in his courtroom. And he says, hey, who shall I send to deceive King Ahab? Because I want to get rid of him. And it's sort of this Q&A in this court, court setting where he's the king. And here he says, he's not speaking directly to Isaiah. It's like he says... I wonder who I could get. I need someone. I need a messenger. I wonder who who I could get. And in my mind, it's a little comical because I think Isaiah just pops up like a jack-in-the-box. Because then what does he say? He says, here am I. Send me. And the Hebrews just send. I'll go. He just pops up and he says, I'm your man. Now what's happened? The, the, The order here is key, isn't it? He sees God as he is. He's holy, and he realizes his own sin. And then God says, I can take care of that. I'm going to atone for your sin. And then when God says, and by the way, I need a messenger, then Isaiah pops up and says, I'm your man. Faithfulness for you and I always starts with the gospel. Right? We talked about this in Sunday school today. We cannot be faithful apart from that initial faithfulness To see something of God's value, worth and holiness, acknowledge our own sin and receive the gift of atonement that Jesus offers us through his death and resurrection. So any first faithfulness is always a response to the gospel. And that's what you see here in Isaiah six. God's holy. I'm not. He's atoned. And now I'm good. And that's exactly what you see with Isaiah. So when God speaks, his conscience is clear. And he sees God's worth, And he's no longer put off. Now he's like, anything you want, I'm ready. I'm your man. He, doesn't, he has no idea what's coming, does he? He has no Because we'll look at that next. He has no idea what the message is. He has no idea what he's going to do. He has no idea what it's going to look like. All he knows is this God, he's God. And I'm on his side and I would do anything for him. That's where we want to get. Faithfulness in the life of Isaiah is born by seeing God. And where should faithfulness in your life and mine come from? Exactly the same thing. From seeing God. Seeing God. Uh, listen to this from... Uh, oh, there's a verse in... Uh, where is it? Ephesians 1.17 Uh, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, not wisdom and revelation for their own sake, but in the knowledge of Him. That when Paul prays for saints like us, he says that you'll know God, that you'll see Him, that you'll hear His voice, that you'll have a personal experience of who He is and what He's like, His perfections, and His worthiness. Isaiah's desire to prove faithful as God's messenger is born entirely of seeing the Lord. He's holy. He's glorious. He's worshipped by the hosts in heaven. He's the power above all powers. He's the king over Judah's king. He's the commanders of the armies of the host. This is the thing. All of us go through seasons of life in which we may feel more or less than encouraged spiritually. And inevitably, you and I will go through what we might call dry spells, or we feel like our faith is down a bit, or we feel like we're not quite getting it, we're not living where God wants us to live, we're not doing the things God wants us to do. And guys, if we're simply carnal, what we tend to do is we berate ourselves, we tell ourselves to work a little harder, get up a little earlier. By the way, there's some practical things we can do, of course, to develop or to engender more faithfulness. But the secret is not to berate ourselves and tell ourselves to do more. It's to see more. That is, if in those periods of despondency, if we see more of Christ as He is, what you'll find is your faith is refueled. Your desire to be faithful is refueled again because you've seen God again. You know, one of the things you see in the book of Acts, the early chapters especially, is it repeatedly says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It didn't happen once. It happened repeatedly. And you and I, some people compare their spiritual life, I'm getting my tank refilled on Sunday morning. I go to church to have my tanks refilled. Well, in some ways, that's a good analogy, isn't it? That life drags us down. There's challenges. Sin in our own selves Challenges outside, we need to have our faith restored and built up and encouraged again. We do so by seeing Christ more fully, or by seeing Him again, or by understanding some element of His nature or His perfection. That's what we need, so we don't beat ourselves up. You know, when people see God in the scriptures, you think of transformation. Jacob was the trickster, he was the heel grabber, he was the deceiver. But once he's seen God and wrestled with the angel of the Lord, he becomes the prince of Israel. And you remember with Moses too, Moses starts out as a murderer and then a coward. And then he becomes Israel's prince. He becomes the mediator of the covenant. He's the guy like Isaiah that sees God high and lifted up. And just similarly also in both of these accounts, there's fire, the mountain shakes, the threshold shakes, It's very similar, God's appearance to Moses on Sinai, very similar to Isaiah's seeing God high and lifted up in heaven. But it's seeing the Lord that engenders the faith. So that's what we want to do. And that's what happens to Isaiah also. He becomes the prince of the prophets because he sees God as he is. So faith starts that way. I'd say, too, uh, Kathy had an experience, I think, before she was a Christian She was looking for the solution. How do I know I'm going to heaven? How do I know I'm okay with God? And I don't remember what the setting was, but she met an older gentleman who she determined later was a Christian. And I don't remember the context or the content of the conversation, but the guy had a piece of pie and he told her, this is a delicious piece of pie. And I'm eating it and I can describe it to you, but you'll never know what this pie tastes like until you taste it. And you think of something like Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. There has to be that personal experience. And that's what Isaiah had. And that's what we need. And we don't need it once. We need it once and again and again and again. And guess how you get that primarily? How do we see Christ most regularly? We read our Bible. Thank you. We read our Bible we can read the bible for all kinds of reasons and it's full of wisdom and it's great literature there's a number of things we've said this before the first and the preeminent reason that we want to read our bible is because we meet christ there it's because we see god as he is in the pages of scripture he's recorded for us we meet god there there's another place we meet god too and it's here on sunday mornings a lot of christians undervalue the estimate of simply gathering as the church God makes promises to meet with us corporately that He doesn't make to us singularly. So God inhabits the praises of His people as in Psalms, which are sung, of course, were sung in the temple corporately. God promises to meet with us when two or three gather together in a way that's not true of us individually. And when we interact around the Scripture and when we meet together around the Lord's Supper, when we sing those songs together, the truth... God shows up, God reveals Himself to us in ways that don't happen on our own. the last thing I'd say, looking for Christ in the Bible, looking for that intimate encounter with God in the pages of Scripture, meeting together, is also just to pray and ask, Lord, would You show me more of Yourself? As I'm in the Word and as I'm gathering with the saints, Lord, would You show me more of Yourself? And He will, because He delights to do that for us to get to know Him more deeply. One of the places too, by the way, if, if your dapper's been down lately, if you just pick up Isaiah and start at chapter 40 and read a little bit, you'll just be overwhelmed by the magnificence of God. Or read Job 38 through 42, or read Revelation 19 through 22. God in His grandeur, His majesty, His power, His perfection, you'll be challenged, you'll be encouraged, you'll be built up as you think about Him in the way that's really true of Him. So for ourselves, have we ever seen for ourselves that that I have a sin issue I can't do anything about, but God has? Have I ever taken that first act of faithfulness in simply receiving the forgiveness God's made abundantly available for me through Christ? And the second one, if that's happened, Isaiah's sins are covered, am I serving God in the ways I know to now? Now we'll learn and we'll grow and the ways we serve God may change over time, But as God's messenger, as God's son or daughter or servant, am I serving now in the ways I know my father wants me to? Friends, every Christian has been gifted, spiritually gifted, has the Holy Spirit, has a call from God on your life to serve in one way or another. And by this, I don't mean ministry like it's a separate function, right? So if a Christian's serving, we're ministering, right? So there's no distinction in God's economy. If you go to work, 8 to 5, is that ministry? I hope it is. Otherwise, what are we doing? Are we serving God at our job, at our school, in our friendships? Of course. God has a call on all of us. Are we serving God in the ways we know to at this point in our life? And if we're not, why not? What has come between us and that kind of enthusiasm Isaiah had Because he saw God and says, I want to do anything you want. Anything you need, you let me know I'm your man. So ask yourself that question if you're not currently serving. That could be as a housewife, right? That could be changing diapers. That could be serving here. Fright, fight, night. Here, Friday the 13th. (laughs) By the way, yeah. Yeah, so it could be anything and everything. Uh, Just sit back and just enjoy this for just a second. When I grow up, I want to file all day. I want to climb my way up to middle management. Be replaced on a whim. I want to have a brown nose. I want to be a yes man. Yes woman. Yes sir. Coming sir. Anything for a raise sir. When I grow up. When I grow up. I want to be underappreciated. Be paid less for doing the same job. I want to be forced into early retirement. How many here remember that ad campaign? It's like 10 or 15 years old now, I think. The only reason I bring that up is, what, what's our, this is, we're switching gears here. What's our idea of success? So if you, you were a little kid and you said, when I grow up, success is what? What does it look like? Or failure is what? What does it look like? Or in our life today, if we're saying, success in life means what? Um, I know that I've succeeded, that I've been faithful in life, if What? happens or what occurs this could be a number of things we might want to develop a large business become a famous author or artist we could say no my measures are more spiritual than that I want to see scores of people come to faith in Christ or I want to lead a vibrant healthy church or I want to have a Christ honoring home and we could say guys by the way we could say that the the measure I have of success I can defend biblically I can say, I can defend it biblically. I can say, God wants these kinds of things. So hold that for just a second. So what if you're holding these things in your thoughts? Success looks this way. And I can base it on God's word. I know God's character. I know his word. And what if then God told you, none of your measures of success are going to occur in your life? What if he told you, he's calling you to faithfulness for a generation, for decades, And none of the things you used as a metric for success will occur. Not one. Would you still feel like you were a success if you believed you'd been faithful? Because if we don't, we have the wrong metric. And if Isaiah had a sense of success based on performance, he would have been the most miserable of men for sure. When people read Isaiah 6, it's often used as a call to ministry or missions. Here am I, send me. But listen to what God called Isaiah 2 before we throw our hat in the ring. So Isaiah's, I'm a sinner. I get it. I've seen God. My sins atoned for. I'm good with that. And I've seen God. And he says, I need someone. And so I pop up and I say, I'm your man. Okay, now this is his ministry. This is his message. Start at verse 9, Isaiah 6 through 13. So God says, go, you're my man, you're my messenger. Go and say to this people, here's your message. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and their eyes blind. lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. That's a strange message. Doesn't God want people to be saved? Because He says elsewhere He does, but this says they're not going to be. So Isaiah hears that, and I think he's scratching his head. And so he asks a question. He says, well, okay, well, how long is this going to last? This thing that they hear, but they don't get it. They see, but they don't perceive. How long is that going to last? Like, is that for one year? Or is that for next month? How long is this going to last, Lord? So the Lord said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant houses, without people, the land is a desolate waste and the Lord Yahweh removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. So God says, Okay, you're my messenger, here's the message. They're not going to believe. You preach my message and they're not going to believe. And Isaiah says, Well, okay, well, how long? Well, until there's absolute devastation and destruction. So he says, First, I'm going to take nine out of ten people out in judgment. and then the one-tenth left, I'm going to burn them like a stump. I'm going to cut a tree down, and then I'm going to burn the stump. So to the question, how long? Isaiah's like, well, I don't know. But this is essentially what happens when in 586, finally, starts in 605 B.C., ends in 586, when Jerusalem and Judah are absolutely destroyed. And there's a tenth. There's a, there's a remnant only left, left in the land. Now, this sounds strange <laughs> because... Isaiah's name means God is saved. And God's just told him, you're going, to, you're going to preach, and people are not going to get saved. In your time, your ministry is going to be goose eggs. You're going to be my man, my messenger, and, and all the stuff you say is going to be rejected. And what you share, they're not going to see and they're not going to hear. Now, we're not touching or we're, we're touching on it. We're not going to go into the concept. I will just say. Remember, remember back in Exodus, uh, God told Moses, Pharaoh won't let my people go. And you remember we said way back in the day, Pharaoh was one of the villains in this series. Pharaoh says, I won't, I won't, I won't. And then what's God say to Pharaoh? You can't, you can't, you can't. And so this nation, Judah, that God is addressing through Isaiah and then later Jeremiah, Judah has said effectively to God over the generations, we won't we won't, we won't. And so God effectively says to them, well, okay, you can't, you can't, you can't. I'm going to honor your decision. In fact, do you not find that this is the case? Have you ever shared the gospel with someone who will say, yeah, that makes sense. And I don't want to hear it. We talked about this in Sunday school class. Is it possible for someone to know the content of the gospel and not be saved? Of course it is. And guess what? You can pile apologetic on apologetic, truth on truth, demonstration on demonstration, and the more truth you proclaim, the obstinacy and the rejection just grows. And that's what's happened among God's people. And so Isaiah's ministry is to preach, proclaim, and demonstrate and show the gospel and God's glory to a people that will refuse it no matter how high the demonstration and the apologetic goes. It's not going to happen. Not in his lifetime. He's called by God to speak for four decades. And though God's always saving a few, Paul talks about this in Romans, there's always a remnant. There's no national turning. The nation is going down. Now I wonder when this happens, do you ever feel like I shared the gospel and they didn't believe. I must have done it wrong. Have you ever had those conversations and you go away and you think, man, they didn't believe. If I'd only said it different. If I'd used a different demonstration or a different explanation, maybe they would have believed. And there's that whole thing of, is it my fault? Or go back to our own godly, biblically informed desires. Let's not say goals. Let's not say measures of success, but desires. So if I'm faithful in all the ways I know to be, and my marriage, my Christian marriage, isn't happy, have I necessarily done something wrong? Now, we all sin. I don't mean to say we all fail. This is a given, right? Does it necessarily mean that that I haven't been faithful? Well, it doesn't. What if I have kids, and, and I know God means for, He wants all people to be saved, and come to a knowledge of the truth, and I want to raise Christian kids, and What if I'm raising a kid and the kid has rejected the faith? Do I say, my parenting was deficient. I thought I was doing it right. I thought I was being faithful, but I must not have because I'm basing that on the results I'm not seeing. You see where this goes. You and I can have all kinds of godly desires that we may never see accomplished in our lifetime. And if. Our understanding of success, as God counts it, is based on results. You and I are in trouble. And so was is Isaiah. By the way, does that sound familiar? The prince of the prophets walks among God's people and his message is rejected. Does that sound familiar? You remember John 1:11? So did Jesus, was Jesus a failure? Now, by metrics of the world, when Christ was crucified and buried, he did look like a failure for sure. Right, because you, you had this three and a half year and things look good and he's accumulated all these people, but then he's not a very good promoter because when he draws a crowd, he makes a way to offend them and send, send them away. You know, he's clearly, he's got a different measure of success, doesn't he? But John 1 11 says he came to his own and his own received him not. Just like Isaiah. In fact, in John 12, Isaiah is cited twice by the Apostle John as he records the nation's rejection, not of Isaiah, but of Jesus, of God in the flesh. 37 through 40, in John 12, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still didn't believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Remember that there was qualitatively, effectively, no difference between Israel hearing Isaiah and Israel hearing Jesus. It was God's word that was being spoken in both settings. Verse 39 continues, Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. That's Isaiah 6. So the prince of the prophets, Isaiah, he sows, but he doesn't reap. It's like a woman in labor, but there's no delivery. But that's just like Jesus in the earthly initial ministry. He speaks God's word, and he's rejected by the nation. He came to save you. In fact, you remember the lament in Luke's gospel, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one that slays the prophets, I would have pulled you under my wings like a hen as I would have pulled you, but you didn't know this was it. I was it. And so your city is left to you. You're left to yourself desolate. That's what happens when we reject God. This is the thing at the end of the day. Faithfulness is success. Faithfulness in and of itself, faithfulness to God, to God's call is success no matter what follows. This should be liberating for us. And I I don't mean falsely that if I'm obeying God in the ways I know to, if I'm being faithful in the ways I know God has called me to and I'm not seeing the results I expected, I don't have to beat myself up because results are God's. Our only call is to be faithful. You and I probably revere the prophet Isaiah. And if you've read his book, you love his book. Now, if you get through the prophetic portions of the the nations and you say, gosh, I'm not sure what that looks like, that's fine. But you read Isaiah 40 through 66 and you'll be jazzed. You would never say he was a failure. But if you use a metric that sort of measures results in his day, he had no success. But we'd say, no, he was a great success because he was faithful to say what God said. So for us, we need to resolve that faithfulness is success. Results aside, faithfulness is all we can do. Faithfulness is all we're called to do. If we do everything but be faithful, it's worthless. But faithfulness to God's call on us, the faithfulness alone, that is success. So guys, it's seeing the Lord that actually gives us success initially, or success in the sense of faithfulness. And we don't beat ourselves up. We, we look to Christ. Every time you find yourself in need, we look to Christ for whatever it is that we need for additional measure of grace or faithfulness. So it starts in salvation when we simply receive the gift. When we're enduring temptation, think of Hebrews 12:2. that's what Jesus did. He endured temptation. On the cross but he counted the joy we see that same thing in him when we feel crushed by the burdens and the weights of life and you will at one time or another I love the Matthew 11:28 28 through 30 we come to Christ because Jesus said I'll give you rest I've got a better way I'll lighten your load I'm meek and lowly of heart when we feel insignificant I think this is a, a key challenge for all of us it's like I see the big wide world I'm not famous I don't affect tens or hundreds or thousands of life. I'm insignificant. And I say, well, you know what? If that's the case, I'm in good company. Listen to this from Isaiah 57. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up. That's Isaiah 6. Who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place. He says, I am that one in Isaiah 6. I'm high and holy. I'm exalted and I'm lifted up. And by the way, who else do I hang out with? And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. If you feel lonely, if you feel down, you're in a perfect place to see more of God. And last, when you feel like your faith has simply failed. And guys, almost everyone, almost every one of us will come to some point in our life in which we're asking, is it really true? Does this stuff really work? Is this really what I can base my life on? You know, Francis Schaeffer who's remembered as this titan of apologetics a few decades ago, when he went to Europe post-World War II, he had a falling out of faith. He didn't know if he was a Christian anymore. And he went back into the barn there in the hills of France or Switzerland, wherever it was relative to the border. And for about a month, he just had it out with God. And, And after that, he concluded God's real. He's the only thing, and I can base my life on Him. But he'd come to an end of faith as he knew it. He needed to see God again in a different way than he had before, or he couldn't go on. And you may find yourself there someday too, where it feels like your own faith has failed. If that happens, read Isaiah 40, verses 29 through 31, because he gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths faint and grow weary. Young men fall exhausted. Those who wait on the Lord gain new strength. They mount up with wings like eagles. They run and they're not weary. They walk and they don't faint. See, it's always tied back to embracing, to seeing, to experience more of the life of God in Christ. It's the beginning of faithfulness. It's what sustains our faithfulness no matter what else is going on in life. Well, if you would, as the worship team comes up, let's read from Isaiah 61 together. This is uh, who we are as members of the Bride of Christ, and this is certainly our future as well. Read with me if you would. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels.